You're listening to The Itch, a podcast exploring all things allergy, asthma, and immunology. I'm your co-host, Courtney, a real-life allergy, asthma, and eczema girl. And I'm your second host, Dr. Payal Gupta, a board-certified allergy, asthma, and immunology doctor. Courtney and I hope to balance each other out so that we get you all the information that you want and need about allergies, asthma, and immunology. I'm super excited about today's topic, allergy testing. As I mentioned in our first episode, I wasn't tested for over 20 years and I finally got retested last spring. What I did was a blood test, a skin prick test, and I went underwent an oral challenge. So I've had three big different types of testing that we can all talk to today. And like all things food allergies, nothing seems to be streamlined and allergy testing is absolutely no exception. So I'm very, very excited to dive into this topic. Hi, Courtney. Yeah, you're right. This is a great topic for us to cover. Hopefully we get through the different tests available at an allergist office. But I think, you know, I think today we're really just going to talk about the ones that you mentioned, actually, um, the skin prick testing, uh, blood tests, and then the oral challenge, because uh, I think diving into too many other tests is probably too much for this episode. Does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds great. Also want to note that I've seen patients who come to me with the expectation of having a magic test um, that is able to diagnose anything. And so hopefully this episode will set some realistic expectations that while we have a lot of effective tests, we're not magicians. We're still just human being doctors. <laughs> no, that's such a good point because I've definitely been there in this like gray allergy testing world, you know, where one thing says one thing and it's not really what's going on in my body. So I'm excited for us to dive into that. So why don't we start with giving us an outline of what the tests are and what we're going to really cover today. So, you know, when we think of allergies of the nose or allergic rhinitis or another term, environmental allergies, we usually do skin testing and sometimes blood tests. So, and then with food allergies, we also do skin prick testing and sometimes both skin prick testing and blood testing. And we'll talk a lot about that today. And we'll also talk about oral food challenges a little. But, you know, the big thing to note with all of this is that every good doctor will not only do testing, but we also get a really good thorough medical history and like kind of like a historical aspect on everything that's been happening with the foods that you're concerned about or the environmental triggers that you're concerned about. And that's the only way to really figure out exactly what's going on. So let's start with environmental allergies. Um, What kind of testing would someone get if they suspect they're allergic to animals or pollens, right? That's what we're looking at with the environment. Exactly. So as I mentioned, skin testing and blood testing are the two tests that we use. And the sensitivity of blood allergy testing is actually 25 to 30% lower than that of skin testing based on comparative studies. So skin testing is sometimes more helpful. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's why it's important that, you know, sometimes a patient will come in with blood testing from their outside doctor and I'll do skin testing just to kind of make sure that the diagnosis is more accurate, especially for food allergies. 
But again, we'll talk about that more later. So can we talk about what happens in a skin test? Yeah. So, I mean, the one really, really important thing for everybody to remember is that even before you go into your doctor's visit, you have something to do. (laughs) And so um, most allergist offices will give you a call before you even come in and let you know that you have to stop taking all of your antihistamines before your visit. So some offices will um, have you avoid all antihistamines for an average of seven to 10 days prior to your visit. Other allergists office will say three to five days is okay. And the truth is, is that different types of antihistamines have different half-lives. And what a half-life is, is the amount of medic, the amount of time that it takes a medication to come out of your system. For example, Benadryl or diphenhydramine doesn't really stay in your bloodstream for very long. And it's, it's probably takes about two days for it to completely be gone. So maybe you could have, maybe you could stop it for two days before, but to be safe, we ask that you stop all of these medications for, you know, at least three days. And again, you have to talk to the specific allergist that you're going to, because some people are more cautious and might even have you stop them for a good 10 days. Can you explain why we wouldn't stop taking antihistamines? Yeah. So antihistamines um, basically interfere with the skin prick testing. So remember that allergic reactions cause the release of histamine. And that's the purpose of the skin test is to see if your skin releases the histamine in response to the allergen that we're testing. So we don't want any medications in your system to block that reaction from happening. So an antihistamine will block that histamine. And that's really what the reaction that we're looking for. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So actually the skin prick is seeing if the body is going to release any histamine. And is, is that what the bump is then? Is that the histamine being released? Yeah, exactly. So when you get tested, basically we expose you to the allergen and the body is supposed to release histamine or the body will release histamine, sorry, if you're actually allergic to that particular thing. And remember, when you release histamine, you cause a little bit of inflammation and irritation. That's what histamine does. And so that's what we see. We see that little bump or irritation inflammation caused by the release of histamine to that allergen. So that's exactly what we're looking at is just that we're looking for that little bit of release of histamine to that chemical or to that allergen. So you have, I know the pricking, but like there's that little liquid that they use. What's in that? Essentially what we use for the most part is what we call an extract. So an allergen extract is, or a solution of the allergen is what we're testing you to. So basically that solution is made up of the protein that your body would react to if it was allergic to that particular thing. So a cat extract has a protein that um, we know in the cat that you're reacting to if it was if you're allergic to the cat. That makes sense. So you're you're basically, it's like a concentration of the proteins because we know that we've talked about this in the past that our body's allergic reaction happens because we're reacting to the proteins. So you have like this concentration of the proteins and then extract. Exactly. Specific to whatever. So a cat extract will have the cat protein that we're allergic to. Dust mites will have the dust mite protein. So each extract is specific to one particular allergen. And can you go into more detail then of the actual skin prick test itself? I know in Europe, they do this test a little bit differently than they do in the US or, and actually all around 
the U.S., people are using different methods too. But for the most part, it's that we, you know, the extract is in liquid form and it's put on your skin. And some people put the extract first and then use like a needle to prick it into the skin. I think that's how you did it in Germany. Is that right? Yeah, that's what I did. Yeah. And then in my office, for example, I have something that's that's different. It's it's a plastic device that they've actually created to test multiple allergens all at once. And so essentially every testing thing has 10 different allergens that I can test for all at once. And they're all kind of attached together with this device. And we're going to put a video up of it, uh, up uh, on our website of the two different methods that are sometimes used with the individual and also with this device. But essentially each extract still has its own spot. And then it's just kind of dipped into the solution, this like plastic device. And then when we put it on your skin, it goes on your skin in a very particular way. And then it's the, the small needle that's at the end of the plastic device pricks the, um, the extract into the top layer of your skin. Okay, that makes sense. It sounds like they're very similar. It's basically pricking the extract into the skin, but just different methods of doing it. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Exactly. I'm probably making it too complicated, but yeah, that's exactly what happens. And then once we prick the skin with the uh, extract, then we wait 15 minutes to allow your body to release that histamine and produce the reaction. So produce that inflammation and that irritation in that one particular spot. So if you're particular, if you're allergic to that particular allergen, you'll have a little like kind of mosquito bite type of reaction in each spot that you're allergic. I have a question because I got it done in groups of five to 10, my allergens. And sometimes they would come and measure after 10 minutes and sometimes they would come and measure after 20 minutes. Does the timing, is it very important how long you wait? Does the timing have a big impact or is there like a, I don't know, a threshold, not a threshold, but you know, is there like a time that you can wait until it's not accurate anymore? Well, generally speaking, I mean, 15 minutes is kind of the, um, the threshold that at least I think most people in the U S use. Um, and again, you know, um, different countries might do it in different ways. So maybe they're just kind of looking to see at 10 minutes, like how quickly are you reacting? And so if there is a reaction at 10 minutes, then maybe they're more worried about that allergen, um, because it's reacting so quickly. Um, but in general, 15 minutes is like the sweet spot, um, where after that time, we know that you've had enough time to react to that particular allergen. Okay. That's interesting. Just, I wasn't sure that it didn't seem very, um, consistent to me the way that it was being done. So I wasn't sure if there was like 10 to 20 minutes was an okay time because I was like, if you're looking at this one particular thing, 10 minutes, and then you're looking at the next one in 20 minutes, I've seen the change of growth because it's like crazy itchy. So I'm like observing it. So that's interesting to know. Yeah. I think that's why, I mean, I stick to just the 15 minute mark so that I know that every time the patient comes in, we're doing testing. We've done, we've looked at the results at the same time. So yeah, you're right. I mean, it does seem a little bit inconsistent, but I'm not really sure what the doctor was thinking in your situation. I think it was a very swamped office. I'll give her that much. I also know that I wasn't just 
pricked for my allergens, there was something they called controls. Can you talk about what those are? Yeah. So um, controls are super important. And um, we have two um, solutions or extracts that are called controls. One of them is the histamine control. And one of them is the saline control. So controls are basically used to help us determine if your skin is normal and how your skin responds to things that you should and shouldn't react to. So like I said, one of the controls is called histamine. And I know you've heard of this because we just talked about it. It's one of the main chemicals involved in the allergic reaction. And everybody should have a reaction to histamine. If you don't have a reaction to that solution, that means that either whatever antihistamine you tried to stop before testing is might still be in your body. So your particular body might hold on to the antihistamine longer than we anticipated. And so for some reason, that histamine reaction is being blocked. And if, if histamine can't react, that means we can't rely on the testing to be accurate for anything else that you're tested to. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So you would have to come back another day because nothing's going to be accurate. Right. Nothing's really going to react, right? If your histamine's not even reacting, or at least we can't really count on the accuracy. So maybe things that you're super duper allergic to, you might still have a mild reaction to, but then the things that you're allergic to, but not as reactive to, you wouldn't react to. And so we would, yeah, we would just need you to come back in another day and stop the the antihistamines for even longer. And then the other thing that we use as a control is saline or basically water, something that you shouldn't react to, right? And so some people, because we are kind of pricking your skin with a little needle, some people have such sensitive skin that even that small prick to their skin will cause a lot of irritation. The saline control will basically let us know how sensitive your skin is just to that pricking sensation, just to like that irritation caused by the needle. So that's another thing that we use to kind of compare the other results too. So if everything looks like your reaction to water, that means that you're probably not allergic. You're just reacting to the the irritation from the needle. That makes sense. So you would use the the like, if you do have a little reaction to the water, would you use the size of that little bump as a way to measure the rest of the reactions? Right. We would definitely look at that as a comparison. So anything that's positive, we would have to say has to be bigger than how you reacted to the water. And most people would say it has to be bigger by at least three millimeters. What are you like looking for in the bump? What are you guys measuring? Like, how do you know? Because I know I definitely got some bumps that no one paid any attention to. You know, and I was like, hey, but there's a little bump. You have to measure it. And they did not. Yeah. So it has to be, again, it has to be greater than three millimeters, which, you know, I think every allergist gets used to what that looks like. And we're actually measuring the bump itself. So there's something called a wheel reaction and a flare reaction. So the wheel means the actual bump and the flare is the amount of redness around it. Really, it's the wheel reaction, the bump that we're mostly worried about, not really the flare. And so that's that's what we're measuring in particular. And again, it has to be greater than three millimeters. So maybe those bumps probably were just too small or looked too much like the control for them to measure them. I think that it was the actual redness around it that I was so concerned about, but there wasn't a bump necessarily. So that makes a lot of sense. 
Because I always thought you were measuring like how big the red circle was. I thought that was what was most important. But it's interesting to hear that it's actually how raised it is. Yes, it's the raised bump that you're worried about, not the redness not the overall redness around it. And how do you guys keep track of everything? Because I feel like there's so much going on and with the timing, with the measurements, and then with adding more allergens afterwards, do you have a certain way of doing your testing? Yes. Um, I get that question a lot from patients as I'm doing the testing. They're like, how are you going to remember all of this? You know, they get kind of worried that um, we're going to kind of you know, not know what they're allergic to after everything's said and done. But no, our job as an allergist is to be very detail-oriented and organized. So maybe we have a certain particular personality type because of that. But yeah, it's a very detail-oriented and um, very organized way. And so I know for me, I always put everything in the same order uh, for, especially like for environmental testing where I do a certain amount every single time just to have like a general overview of everything that they're allergic to. And then with the foods, it gets more specific because I don't like testing for every food every time. And so I do mark things a little bit more particularly with foods where, um, where I'll mark each one and make sure that, you know, I put next to it, crab, shrimp, you know, I'll just write on the person's skin. Oh, that's good because I, I've had it where I've been numbered and then I've put been I've had it also where they put a grid on my arm, which took like two weeks to get clean. And I just remember being like, thank goodness I am not allergic to ink because this would just be a mess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And yeah, ink reactions would not be good. You would have, yeah, you would have, it would take a while for that to go away. But thankfully you're not allergic. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm very happy that that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, but I can see if you have sensitive skin, why you might get worried. And can we talk more about um, why this, like why skin prick testing can get a little bit complicated? Because I know this has happened to me personally. Uh, let's talk about maybe false positive and false negative and what that means in an a skin prick test? Yeah. So those are two really, really good terms to talk about. And I think, um, you know, I think even for doctors, it's, it's, they're complicated terms. So, you know, we're going to go through it a couple times, I think today, just to kind of really like hammer it in, you know, essentially, so a false positive means that a test looks positive, but the person isn't actually allergic to that particular allergen. So it's falsely positive. Okay. So when we expose to them to that food or environmental allergen, they won't actually react, but the test looks like it's reacting. It looks like there's, you know, that three millimeter bump or even bigger, and it looks like they're reacting or the blood test looks like it's positive but it's actually not truly positive. So it might look like they're reacting, but they really aren't. Right. And so that person might have sensitive skin, right? That's the reason that they might be react looking like they're reacting to everything because they just have very sensitive skin. And so again, that's why the um, control is uh, so important, but sometimes we can get false negatives, even though the control, the um, saline control looks pretty negative too. I'm sorry, false positives. Yeah, it's confusing. (laughs) And so what's a false negative? So a false negative is the opposite. So that's when the test looks negative, but in reality, you're reacting um, to that allergen. And so it's 
actually should be positive, right? So it's falsely negative. So for example, that would happen if you're on an antihistamine. So if all the reactions are being suppressed because you're on, um, you're on something that's not allowing the histamine to be released, then everything will look falsely negative. Everything will look negative when it's not truly negative. It's just that your body can't react to the histamine that's being released. So to summarize, a false positive is when maybe my skin is too sensitive and it looks like I'm reacting, but I'm not. And a false negative is when I'm not reacting when I should be. And that could be caused because, say, I still have antihistamine in my body. Exactly. And, you know, again, we can put this up on our website just so people have the terms as they're listening or later on, if you get confused again, we'll, we'll have it um, kind of listed out again on the website. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like that's also when someone says I'm nearsighted and farsighted. I'm like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's just, yeah, no, there are terms that I think even doctors have to like stop and think and say, am I saying the right one? Is it a false negative or a false positive? There are definitely terms that you have to get used to, but the more you use them, the more you get used to them. And is that why a lot of times you have your skin prick, but then you also have your blood test like done at the same time to compare them? So could you talk more about what blood testing does? Essentially, the skin testing and the blood testing is kind of used as like a checks and balances of one another. So we can test for allergies by using the skin prick method that we just talked about, or we can do the blood testing. And sometimes, like I said, people will come into my office, they've already had the blood test done. And then I'll look at it. And if it looks like everything for example, like everything is positive, then I might decide to say, you know what, let's do a skin test just to confirm that you're truly allergic to all of these things. And that's, like I said, it serves as a checks and balances kind of thing. So is there a point where you would use one test versus the other test? So it's also dependent on availability. A doctor that isn't an allergist that doesn't do the skin prick testing in their office they can definitely send a patient for a blood test, right? And sometimes when a doctor does that, that isn't an allergist, they're looking just to see, is does this person even look allergic? And then once they find out, oh, the testing looks positive, then they'll refer them to me to kind of interpret the testing. That's like the ideal situation because that way they've done the initial screening test They're sending them to me because they're worried that the patient looks like they have blood tests that are, you know, that are showing allergens. And just to review what the blood test is, essentially, you're taking someone's blood, you're putting it through a computer system, and that computer system is looking for IgE to whatever specific allergens we're worried about. And then once the computer system sees those specific IgEs to, let's say, you're allergic to dog and it's looking through the blood and it says, oh, there's one, there's one, there's one. It gives a numerical value to how many of those specific IgEs it sees to that specific allergen. So for dog, it might be a two or three, you know, and every lab has different kind of thresholds on what they consider positive. And that's usually listed when you get your blood work results back, but essentially they'll give you a numerical value. And the higher the number, the more that the computer system detected that particular 
food or environmental IgE in your, in that person's blood. That's interesting. So like, say I, I have a new blood test, you know, I have my one blood test and then like a year later I get another one and it's a different doctor. So I shouldn't compare the actual numbers of the, both the blood tests because they could have been done at different labs and different labs have different ways of interpreting the numbers. That's actually very true. Yes. Yeah. So different labs might have different cutoffs. And so you can't, it's like comparing apples and oranges. You can't always compare unless you're using that same lab. That's a really, really good point. When would you use one test versus the other test for the same thing? So great question. Sometimes we use both, as I mentioned above, and this is super important. I think for food allergy testing in particular, if someone tests negative or positive to a food on a skin prick test and we might want to confirm that it's really negative or positive, then we would do the blood test. And then, for example, if they're both negative, then we feel confident, then we can do an oral food challenge, um, for example, for that patient and really confirm that, you know, they're not allergic to that food anymore. And another thing to remember I know we talked about how the skin test is more sensitive than the blood test is that the skin tests do have like a 40 to 60% rate of false positives, which means again, that you could get a positive result when you're not actually allergic to that food. And it's specific to food allergy testing. That's really high percentage. And actually that's happened to me with almonds. You know, I'd never eaten them because I was told to avoid them as a child. And then when I did my skin prick test, it came up as negative. So my allergist did the blood test and determined that, yeah, I could do an oral challenge to them. And I did. And I passed. Wow. That's awesome. That is so cool that, you know, you were diagnosed with an allergen when you were younger and that, you know, somebody actually was able to undiagnose you. That's my favorite thing to do actually in the office. I love those days when I can actually tell someone that they're no longer allergic to something or maybe that they were misdiagnosed when they were younger. It's it's actually the best feeling for everybody. And one thing that I wanted to mem- uh, mention also is that when we do the blood tests, we also check something called a total IgE level. So we're looking at the total number of IgEs that are floating around in that person's body. And everybody will have a different value for that. And some people have really, really high levels of IgE. Um, A lot of those times, those patients have pretty bad eczema. And so they can have really elevated IgE levels. And in that case, the computer gets super confused. And the computer oftentimes will give a lot of false positive results, meaning everything looks positive to the computer. As the computer is sifting through all of that IgE, it keeps thinking, oh, this must be to almond, this must be to walnut, this must be to hazelnut. And it's just all of a sudden it thinks that everything is positive because it's getting overwhelmed with the amount of IgE in that person's blood. Interpreting the tests is so difficult sometimes, and it really takes a lot of practice in knowing what we should consider a true positive, what we shouldn't, and when we should also do the skin prick testing to kind of compare. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I feel like all of this grayness that happens in the world of allergy testing is something I've experienced. And I think that I might be one of those people with these really high IgE levels, because I know that I remember when I got my, and this is again, why you have to get 
a doctor to help you understand this the test that you're getting because I got my tests results back and the numbers for tomato and the numbers for soy were exactly the same and I've had multiple reactions to soy and we know it's a true allergy and I eat tomatoes like almost every day and I sat there and I was like starting to freak out and I was like don't freak out you eat tomatoes all the time let's call the allergist and get them to explain what's going on and I told my allergist you know I eat tomatoes every day what does this mean and he he was like, knowing your history, you don't need to worry about that. I guess I didn't realize that that was maybe one of the reasons why the test result was so high is because of this elevated IgEs in the body. Yep, exactly. And um, I love your allergist. That's exactly what I would have done. And this is one example. If the blood test is positive and you know you're eating the food without any issues, that's the best test possible. If you can eat the food without any issues, then we definitely don't need to do a skin prick test to confirm it because your body has already confirmed it for us, right? Your reaction to the food is the number one most helpful thing that we have. That's why I don't really like, like I said, sending out too many blood tests or doing too many skin prick tests to food allergens in particular, because then we get into this gray zone, you know, we can get those false positives and then it becomes very, very confusing and people get really anxious because then they feel like they need to avoid foods when they actually don't. And then I know that you mentioned to me that in Germany, they don't call it an allergy unless you've actually reacted in real life. And I love that. We don't have that strict policy in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. My allergist explained to me that because the tests are only so accurate that you don't truly really know you're allergic until you've reacted. And I think they're very cautious on saying it's an allergy because like we've talked about it, you don't know until you know, unfortunately. Yeah. And I think that I wish we were a little bit more strict here in the U.S. And I think allergists are, but the problem comes when testing is kind of done by doctors who aren't trained allergists. And I'm not saying anything negative. It's just that because the blood test is so easy to send and because even the skin prick testing, any doctor can kind of buy the extracts and buy the tools needed to skin prick test. We have a lot of people in at least in the U.S. that are doing skin prick testing and sending out for blood tests that haven't really been trained in, in the actual interpretation and don't have the practice that we have um, in interpreting the test. And so I get a lot of patients that come in with these huge lists of allergens, and then we have to kind of go through, figure out the history, figure everything out, redo the testing, and just really get down to what they're truly allergic to. And sometimes patients don't make it to me, and they just walk around thinking that they're allergic for the rest of their lives. I can't believe, like, that's the, the shame in it all, is that first, I didn't realize that, you know, anyone can give this test. And second, you know, when we misinterpret these results, it's always so tricky. And it's always a shame to hear that all these people are avoiding food that they don't need to. After having, you know, a positive experience with an oral challenge, that's why I'm such a big fan of telling people to go out to the allergist and actually get a proper test done. Yeah, exactly. Too much availability. <laughs> and I think we just need more strict rules on who can do the tests and who can review the results. And I think I think that we are going to start like fighting for that as allergists because it's just leading to, I think, a lot more problems than it's worth for the entire medical community, everybody and everybody involved and the entire 
community is in terms of like patients and doctors, actually. So to summarize kind of what we've talked about at this point, because I feel like we want to get into one more thing, which is really interesting to me. Um, But before we jump into oral challenges, what we've talked about is skin tests and blood tests, but how we also have to really look at the whole picture and the history and how the history of that patient impacts what we're reading when we see test results. Exactly. So for example, if a patient's skin test is positive to milk, but they eat milk products or drink milk products all the time without any issue, then obviously that tells me that they're not allergic. But if a patient has hives and wheezing after having milk products, then then that skin test that's positive that gives me data supporting that it is a true allergen. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And that's, again, I feel like this is my like, thing that I preach. It's like, that's why we need to go to the allergist and get testing done. And I can only say that from experience. So going off of experience um, and what I think is interesting about what you're going to say in my own experience is regarding oral challenges with food. So can you talk to us a little bit about what an oral challenge looks like? Yeah, of course. So, um, you know, an oral food challenge is really done to make sure that what we found on the blood and skin testing really truly makes sense. So it's for that patient who might've been allergic to a food at one point, and now the testing looks like it's negative. So we want to see if that person really has truly outgrown their allergy. So essentially, an oral food challenge is only done to one food at a time. So in one visit, again, you can only get tested to one food. So there's no strict protocol on how this is done. But I know in my office, I always start slow. Okay, so I start the challenge by just exposing the patient to the food through the skin. So I'll literally, and my all my kids that I'm doing these tests on, they'll always laugh because I just kind of smear a little bit of the food on their cheeks. And they're just, you know, they're looking at their parents like, what is she doing, you know? But the first exposure that I give to the patient is just, you know, through the skin. And um, from there, I wait 15 minutes and I make sure that there isn't a reaction, make sure that they're not getting a little hive or that they're not getting super itchy, um, or that they actually don't physically start feeling sick with nausea or vomiting or anything like that. So some people are just so sensitive that even exposure to the skin can cause a reaction. And you would stop if they start getting hives, you would stop. Exactly. At any point during the testing, if that patient has a reaction, then we stop the challenge. Then we know that that person is allergic and that we need to stop. And that's it. Then the challenge is done, right? We don't go further. But if they're fine after 15 minutes, then from there, we continue the challenge by by putting a small amount just on the lips. So the lips are actually, they absorb things into the system more than the skin does. The second thing I do is I put on the lips and I wait for another 15 minutes. If there's no reaction, then I'll put a tiny little bit to the tongue. And then if that's tolerated, then we continue every 15 minutes until we reach a certain amount of the food that we feel comfortable with that the patient's able to tolerate without having a reaction. How long do they wait before they're sent home? So that really probably depends on each individual doctor. For me, I usually wait about one hour after the last dose. And then I always give clear instructions on when to call 911, for example, 
or give epinephrine if there is a delayed reaction, um, which is usually very rare, but can happen. So I just always make sure that, you know, the person understands that if it's a child, you know, the parent really needs to watch the child even after they go home, make sure that they're not um, starting to get, you know, stomach aches or vomiting or obviously having any kind of symptoms um, because that could indicate that they're having a delayed reaction. And then in the U.S., I just want to say we call 911, which means that's our emergency kind of services. So, yeah, so that's um, that's what I have them do after the challenge. And how much how much do they get? Like, what's the final dose look like? Does it depend on the allergen? Yeah, it depends on the food allergen. There is there there's a couple papers that kind of outline certain amounts of food, um, like the amount of total food protein that the person ingests, that would be a good amount for a food challenge. So um, we try to stick to those amounts just to make sure that the person's got enough of that peanut protein in their system to really say, okay, you're not allergic anymore. This is really fascinating because the oral challenge I underwent was in a hospital setting. So I was actually there for three days. I did something called a double blind oral challenge. So I didn't know if I was eating the allergen or not. And the doctor giving me the dose didn't know if they were giving me the allergen or not. And basically the food was disguised. So I had no idea. So it was this really sweet, chocolatey kind of like rice pudding texture that was both soft and crunchy and smooth. It was it was not like a happy eating process for anyone because it was really disgusting. But I was doing it with another lady and she was challenging fish and her concoction was even worse. So at least mine tasted somewhat like chocolate. But it was interesting because I passed one and I failed one. And I passed um, almonds, which we talked about, and I failed peas, and I failed peas on the second dose, which actually was the first dose because they always, but what I learned after was that the first one they give you to see if you're going to react to the like solution they've created to disguise the food, and then you, you start eating the food. So we don't do anything like with rubbing it on our skin or our lips. You just go straight into eating the actual food. That's interesting. Yeah, that's super interesting. And and they, you know, when doctors do challenges, there are certain foods that you're really ner- nervous about for that patient. And then there's certain foods that you're not. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're worried, then you'll really start with like the skin, right? If you're not, then you'll go right into kind of feeding it. And I'm sure that the amount of pea protein that they had, and even what you ate was super duper tiny. So I'm, uh, they probably weren't exposing you to very much to be safe regardless. But I, I mean, I love, I love the idea of a double blind placebo. I just, in my office setting, I don't have the ability to do that, but it's actually amazing for people who have a lot of anxiety related to the food that they're, that they think that they're allergic to that, you know, that we don't technically have any indication according to the skin prick test or the blood test to say that you should be allergic. So, but the patient has so much anxiety over the food that it's really hard to even do the oral challenge because they're just already feeling itchy before they're even given the food, you know? So, so the double blind placebo is an amazing tool that I think a lot of people can benefit from. Yeah. I mean, I'm really lucky with the center that I go to that they have this because I mean, the time and resources it takes for someone to do a double blind is 
it's intense. I mean, I was three days in the hospital. I am one of those people, like I had never ever eaten almonds in my whole entire life. And I was, you know, I was walking through this world with 28 years of experience thinking an almond is gonna send me into anaphylaxis. So I feel like if someone put an almond in my hand and said, eat it, I'd be like, no way. You know, everything from my head to my body would be stopping me. So it was nice to have that freedom, that like clarity in my head of going, well, I don't know and no one knows. So just eat it and then your body will tell the story. And that's good because I get stuck in my head a lot of times. And I know that my brain could be telling me a totally different story of what's actually happening. The mind-body connection is so real. And I tell people that all the time, you know, and it's that whole butterflies in your stomach concept, you know, when you're anxious, when you're scared of something like an exam, you know, or whatever, your stomach all of a sudden starts reacting. You start feeling nauseous. You start feeling like you need to go to the bathroom. You start having abdominal pains and it's all, it's all because of everything that's going on in your mind and, and the anxiety that you're producing is going straight into your stomach. So if you can get those symptoms just from the anxiety related to an exam, imagine what would happen to something that you're worried that you're going to have an anaphylactic reaction to, you know, it's, it's inevitable that you might have those same symptoms and they, they would look like you're having a reaction, right? Cause if you're complaining about stomach aches and you feel like you need to go to the bathroom and that would be a reaction. Do you do anything with your patients to help them stay calm when they're doing an oral challenge? I think I just emphasize over and over that I'm, I would never do the challenge if I wasn't very, very sure that they weren't allergic. And I show them the numbers. I, you know, sometimes I even do the skin prick testing more than once on different days just to show them that it truly is negative. I think it's a lot of reassurance and it's a lot of just letting them know that I'm there. If they do have a reaction, we've got everything covered. We're ready for them and that we're going really slow. You know, we're starting with just exposure to their skin. We're starting, you know, if at any time they feel anything, we can stop it. So yeah, I definitely try to relieve their anxiety. But again, I think some people would probably ultimately benefit from the double blind placebo because there's only so much that you can do. Yeah, no, I know. I'm I'm definitely a very lucky person to have that experience. So it's always very interesting for me to talk to people who've done the oral challenge. Do they actually see the allergen? Because I've actually never had that experience of having an allergen directly come to me. And I think that's definitely a different experience. Uh, so I think let's summarize because we've talked a lot about different types of testing. And also what's really interesting is the um, psychological side of allergy testing. And I think that if you're nervous, for instance, I was really nervous about getting a skin prick test because I had been 25 years without one. And I just, my memories of it, of having it done when I was a child were so brutal that I like cried and begged my mom not to get one ever again. So I went back into it so many years later thinking it's going to be the worst, it's going to be terrible, I'm going to be itchy, I'm going to be crying, I'm going to be miserable all day. But I prepared myself by researching and knowing what was going to go into it. So the more you know sometimes, the better in terms of like now I know what you 
are looking for when the prick happens you're looking for the bump and not the redness around it that's what's more important so it's good to for me to know these things when it's happening so I don't freak out because I have a tendency to do that so we talked about the skin prick test and we talked about the blood test and also about you know interpreting those results and doing it with an allergist because the numbers can get really confusing and you shouldn't avoid food that you've been eating for your whole life just because a piece of paper says it's got a high number Exactly. And it's not just you. I just want to point out, Courtney, that this is like a huge problem for so many patients with food allergies in particular, just the anxiety over the testing, the anxiety over the food, anxiety over um, the results. It's just, it's, you know, when you start off as a child with all of this stuff, the testing is always scary as a child. Anybody coming at you with anything when you're a kid, especially if that person's wearing a white coat, especially if it's in a room that, you know, looks like a doctor's off anything, it's going to be scary. And and then that memory never really leaves you. And so it, I've had that happen so many times with adults that come in. They're like, I've been avoiding this for years because I remember what it felt like as a child. And it's just so funny that we, we hold on to those memories so much that as an adult, even though we know that, oh my God, I was a kid when that happened happened, we're still so scared, you know, and, and I get it. Childhood memories are very deeply set in. So it's not just you. And, um, and I, I think, I think that this discussion is super important for everybody to hear. I think it's, I think it's good to know, you know, that I'm not the only one feeling this way. (laughs) No, no, not at all. That's a really, it's, it's very reassuring. I think sometimes when you have food allergies and you don't know many other people with food allergies, personally. I mean, I know lots online of a good online community, but like in my day to day, I don't really have anyone I interact with. So to hear that, it's always reassuring to know that I'm not alone. But I know that we are going to end here today, but we have lots of other testing we're going to talk about in the future. Yes, for sure. We're going to, I mean, there's asthma testing in the office. There's patch testing that we do for rashes. So yeah, we have a lot more to discuss about in-office testing at the allergist office. But I think this was enough to kind of start with. um, And we'll delve into those other topics maybe when we talk about the different conditions. Well, thank you very much for talking to us about testing today. And, And remember, if you guys have any questions about what we talked about today in terms of testing, please let us know on our Instagram because we really want to be a great resource for you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember that all information you hear today is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. And also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a second, help spread the word by rating our podcast and sharing with your friends and family who might also be interested in learning more about allergies, asthma, and immunology. You can always stay up to date by checking out our Instagram, The Itch Podcast, where you can leave questions you are itching to know, or check out our website, which is www itchpodcast.com, which contains more information about the subjects we covered in today's episode and every episode. Until next time, have a fabulous week.